0: Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Christian Kabbalah by Peter J. Forshaw Gershom Scholem argues that the primary motivation for Christian Kabbalists was a form of missionary activity. Quote, Christian Kabbalah can be defined as the interpretation of Kabbalistic texts in the interests of Christianity, or to be more precise, Catholicism, or the use of Kabbalist concepts and methodology in support of Christian dogma. It's from Gershom Sholem, The Beginnings of Christian Kabbalah. As evidence, he points to the Christological speculations of Jewish converts, such as the Pugio Fide*, Dagger of Faith of Raymond Martini, 1220-1285, works that contributed to the growth of the incipient Christian Kabbalah. 1. Giovanni Pico della Mirandola and the Dawn of Christian Kabbalah Although the Majorcan mystic Ramon Lull 1225 to 1315, is sometimes credited with being the first Christian to show an acquaintance with Kabbalah in his De Audita Kabbalistico. The work actually shows little familiarity with the Jewish tradition. Christian speculation about the Kabbalah first took root in the Florentine Renaissance. While Marsilio Ficino, 1433-1499, was busy translating and writing commentaries on the works of Plato, Plotinus, and Hermes Trismegistus, Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, 1463-1494, began studying Kabbalistic works. This was all part of Pico's project of creating his syncretic Philosophia Nova, his synthesis of Aristotelian and Platonic thought with esoteric doctrines gleaned from the Prisky Theology, such as Zoroaster, Orpheus, Hermes Trismegistus, and Pythagoras. Pico is the first author raised as a Christian who is known to have read an impressive amount of genuine Jewish Kabbalah. He marks a watershed in the history of Hebrew studies in Europe. The fruit of Pico's studies can best be found in his famous 900 Conclusiones Philosophicae Kabbalisticae et Theologicae, 1486. It was here that Pico first introduced the Kabbalah into the mainstream of Renaissance thought by means of 47 Kabbalistic conclusions, according to the secret teaching of the wise Hebrew Kabbalists, and 72 Kabbalistic conclusions according to my own opinion." With further Kabbalistic references in other groups of conclusions, including those on magic, Mercury Trismegistus, Zoroaster, and the Orphic Hymns. Pico's two major Kabbalistic influences were the Spanish Kabbalist Abraham Abulafia 1240 to CA 1291 and the Italian Rabbi Menahem Recanati. 1250 to 1310. These men represent two quite different types of Kabbalah, the one ecstatic, the other theosophical, theurgical. Rechinati is mainly concerned with the ten sephirot as divine emanations and engages in symbolic exegesis of scripture as a way to unravel their mysteries. So there's two common probably prevalent forms of Kabbalistic exercise. One is the mouth-to-ear communication of of the Kabbalists with each other. They'd have a glass of brandy often traditionally, and they'd speak in a dialectical way to create revelation and understanding and insight with each other. And then there's meditative forms that aim at ecstatic transformation through uh, exercises like Temura and other visualized meditations with, uh, spoken words of Hebrew letters and chanting and stuff like that. So there are these two early traditions. It's quite important to understand that they were very well represented in the middle ages and 1300 by, by Abulafia, who's definitely on the ecstatic side. And, uh, Reconati, who is more, again, as he says, the Theosophical, Theurgical. They're both aimed at theurgy in many ways, though. So the distinction is somewhat subtle, and the point that that Forshaw makes about um, engaging through understanding the sephirah as divine emanations and symbolic exegesis. Uh, If you don't know much about biblical criticism, exegesis is the drawing out from a text, drawing out the meaning from a text, as opposed to eisegesis, which is reading yourself into a text, which we see a lot in literalism and fundamentalism these days with personal revelation theologies. On the other hand, Abulafia, the father of prophetic Kabbalah, tends to downplay the importance of the Sephirot and concentrates on the names, Shemot, of God and their permutations as a spiritual discipline by which man can attain union with the divine. On Abulafia and Rakanadi, see uh, Moshe Adel's Kabbalah in Italy. Moshe Adel is the predecessor of Gershom Sholem and possibly the most... Reputable Kabbalistic scholar alive and writing today over at the University of Jerusalem. Though neither detailed nor systematic in his discussion, for example, of the Sephirot, paths of wisdom, gates of understanding, Pico nevertheless shows an awareness of these teachings and understands their relation to Kabbalistic theories of creation and revelation. Pico's alleged primary motivation for studying the Kabbalah is evangelizing against heretics and Jews. In the Apologia he composed in 1487, following the condemnation of 13 of his theses as heretical, he avows that his motive is quote, to do battle for the faith against the relentless slanders of the Hebrews. That's in Brian P. Copenhagen's The Secret of Pico's Oration, Kabbalah, and Renaissance Philosophy. As his second set of Kabbalistic conclusions explains, his intention is one of providing powerful confirmation of the Christian religion from the very principles of the Hebrew sages, so that the Jews can be refuted by their own Kabbalistic books. He proposes to use the Kabbalah's own hermeneutical techniques to prove, for instance, the supremacy of the name of Jesus and the mystery of the Trinity. The significance of Pico's Kabbalah should not, however, be restricted simply to Christian polemic and apologetics. That is, it was not written simply as uh, an attack and explanation for Christianity against Judaism. Chaim Versubsky. Argues that the Kabbalistic conclusions outgrew their original purpose and that Pico viewed Kabbalah from an entirely new standpoint, being the first Christian who considered Kabbalah to be simultaneously a witness for Christianity and an ally of natural magic. That's in uh, Haim Wersubski's Pico della Mirandola's Encounter with Jewish Mysticism, Harvard University Press, 1989. Pico's interest goes far beyond the simple confirmation of Christianity when, in his magical conclusions, he famously asserts that the divinity of Christ is best demonstrated by the science of magic and Kabbalah. This is a big statement. Joseph Dan believes that with this thesis, Pico is less concerned with promoting traditional Catholicism than with implying that Christianity should discover a new meaning one outlined in his 900 theses. That's in Joseph Dan, the Kabbalah of Johannes Reuchlin and its historical significance, the Christian Kabbalah. The extreme nature of the claims Pico makes, such as that, no magical operation can be of any efficacy unless it has annexed to it a work of Kabbalah, created a widespread interest in his Jewish tradition. Pico's alliance between Kabbalah, magic, and theology produced a significant development in Christian Kabbalah. From then on, a Christian Kabbalist could be a theologian, or a magus, or both. 2. Johann Reuchlin's influential formulations on the word and the art During the time... Pico was active in Florence. He was visited by the German scholar Johann Reuchlin, 1455-1522. Universally regarded as one of the key figures of European scholarship and intellectual life at the turn of the 16th century, Reuchlin wrote two of the most influential books of Christian Kabbalah, the De Verbo Mirifico on the Wonder-Working Word, 1494, and De Art Kabbalistica on the Kabbalistic Art, 1517. One of the main attractions of Kabbalah for him was the multiplicity of divine names in Hebrew. In his conclusions, Pico had briefly referred to the name of Jesus in a Kabbalistic text. In De Verbo Merifico, Reuchlin launched into a full-blown declaration of how the Jewish four-letter name of the Tetragrammaton, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh, had been superseded by the five-letter Christian Pentagrammaton, the name above all others, Yod-Heh-Shin-Vav-Heh. Now this is the origin of what is most famous in occult circles and practical magical land. Um, this is the beginning of that whole uniting of the Tetragrammaton by the shentri. By the Shin, the Pentagrammaton, and the uniting of these forces, and and the Yeheshua versus with Yehovah, it's a big deal. I'm even a little jittery just talking about because this is it's it's very interesting when you actually look at where this came about, and uh, especially when you tie it into the fact that. Forshaw makes this very clear point about uh, how it changed uh, spiritual culture and theological behavior when he, you know going when he said from then on christian kabbalists could be a theologian or a magus or so both this is an incredibly overlooked part of religious history that has only become about because of the push by some key academics to create this academic world of study of esotericism done seriously in the association for the study of esotericism and and the European ESWE, So, big stuff. Reuchlin's first Kabbalistic work was significant for its ideas about language and the contribution it made to the Renaissance debate on the occult powers and properties of words and names it contained extraordinary examples of marvelous deeds achieved through the wonder-working word from feeding the hungry and curing the sick to exercising demons and reviving the dead by the time he published De art Cabalistica, reuchlin was the leading christian hebraist of his age and had become involved in the controversy with the cologne dominicans over the talmud sometimes referred to as the battle of the books reuchlin wrote his second Kabbalistic work, as a form of special pleading for the protection of Hebrew books against burning because of their Christian content. This was a particularly courageous stance to take and a radical departure from the standard theological antagonism toward the Talmud he's he's trying to prevent burning another religion's books by saying that there is Christian content buried within them it's essentially a way of saying like don't burn someone else's sacred knowledge because all sacred knowledge may come from the same place or have traces of the one truth in it, it is it is a sort of priskytheologia sort of argument but it's also the work of a humanist trying to protect the burning of knowledge so yeah, uh, he did. He was. Did he actually believe that that the, what was good in Judaism and Hebrew writings was essentially Christian, or did he maybe uh, have a sense of horror at the idea of burning our history and knowledge simply because it was written by someone of another religion? An important aspect of the new concept of language found in Kabbalistic sources was a set of exegetical techniques having no counterpart in the Christian interpretation of Scripture. This is key. In De Art Kabbalistica, Reuchlin provides examples of the Jewish techniques of gematria, or arithmetic, notarikon, manipulation of letters, and temura, commutation of letters, all for the sake of proving the supremacy of the Christian religion. Somewhat incongruously, Reuchlin's Jewish representative, Simon ben Eliezer, promotes Christian Trinitarian doctrine with his explanation of how the 12-letter name Ab ben Veruch Hakkadesh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, flows from the Jewish Tetragrammaton, yod heh he. So informative was Reuchlin's exposition that from his time, no writer who touched on Christian Kabbalah with any thoroughness did so without using him as a source. 3. Other Significant Sources for Early Christian Kabbalah One of the central figures in 16th century Christian Kabbalah is undoubtedly the Venetian scholar Francesco Giorgio, CA, 1460-1540, to 1540, author of the two large volumes on Kabbalah that were widely read, De Harmonia Mundi Totius Cantico Tria, Three Canticles on the Harmony of the Whole World, 1525, and The Problemata, 1536. In both books, the Kabbalah was central to the themes developed and the Zohar, for the first time, was used extensively in a work of Christian origin. Elaborating on the works of Pico and Reuchlin in De Harmonia Mundi, Giorgio presents the major ideas of Renaissance Kabbalists. In the process, he takes the Christianization of Kabbalah far beyond that found in Pico's Theses, one of Giorgio's disciples, Arcangelo de Borgonovo, death, 1571, borrowing extensively from the works of his teacher in Reuchlin, published a Declarazione sopra il nome di Chiuso, Declaration of the Name of Jesus, 1557, essentially an expansion of the final chapters in Reuchlin's De Verbo Merifico. This was later followed by a commentary on Pico's Kabbalistic theses, kabbalistarum SELECTIORA OBSCURIRAQUE DOGMATA, MORE SELECT AND OBSCURE DOGMAS OF THE KABLISTS, 1569. The German-Jewish convert Paulus Riccius, 1470-1541, likewise discovered in Kabbalah the mysteries of the Trinity, the eternal generation of the Son of God, redemption through the Passion and Blood of the Messiah, and His Resurrection, Ricci was widely read in Hebrew sources, and with the zeal of a convert, he published a series of short tracts under the title Sal Fideris, Salt of Covenant in 1507, intended to defend Christianity against the calumnies of the Jews. In 1514, Ricci became physician to Emperor Maximilian I, for whom in 1519 he prepared a new Latin translation of the Talmud with commentary. In 1516, he published what was to become an influential translation of Joseph Gicatilla's Gates of Light, 1516, containing the first depiction of the Tree of Life outside a Jewish text. The most famous of his Kabbalistic works is the four-part religio-philosophical synthesis of Kabbalistic and Christian sources De Celesti Agricultura on Celestial Agriculture, 1541. If... If celestial agriculture is not the coolest sort of as-above-so-below title, I I don't know what is. That's pretty funny. Book 4 consists of an introduction to the Kabbalah in a series of 50 theorems, as well as a translation of main passages from Gikatilla's Gates of Light. Ironically, despite his Jewish origins and obvious erudition, and despite the orthodox, non-magical nature of Ricci's Kabbalah, He was accused by a priest of not propounding true Kabbalah, because he presented this doctrine in another light than that of Pico. So here we see Pico's already become sort of the dogmatic source of interpretation for a Christian on Kabbalah, which of course is problematic for scholarly development in any way. The individual responsible, however, for providing the most enduring image of early modern Christian Kabbalah is the German theologian Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa, 1486 to 1535 in his encyclopedia of esoteric thought de occulta Philosophia libri tres three books of occult philosophy 1533 uh i i understand why dr Forshaw calls agrippa a theologian i think that might be a kind word for what agrippa was um maybe not maybe it's a maybe it is a diss i don't know it's interesting. It depends on how you interpret theologians in, throughout time. Sometimes it's nicer to call them a philosopher, sometimes nicer a theologian. In both cases, with someone like Agrippa, it's, uh, it's an interesting sort of subtle issue there. Anyway, Agrippa's work was to become one of the most widely consulted sources for Kabbalah in the Christian world despite or perhaps because of the fact that Agrippa only shows knowledge of the works of Christian Kabbalists such as Pico, Reuchlin, Ricci, and Giorgio, rather than direct engagement with Hebrew or Aramaic sources. Remember that the Zohar, the massive, lengthy medieval Kabbalistic text, is mostly written in Aramaic and wasn't even fully available in English translation until Madonna had Rav Berg do it in recent times with the Kabbalah Center. So that's a key point there that book not being used for Agrippa to not use actual Hebrew and Aramaic sources and just refer to the Christian Kabbalists as perpetuating a synthesized tradition rather than going back to any sort of source and really shows that Agrippa was not functioning in the same way with the Prisca Theologia idea uh, that others were Agrippa presents a similar intermingling of Pythagorean, Neoplatonic, and Kabbalistic ideas to Reuchlin, iterating the same claims to Hebrew being the original language, and the significance of its 22 letters as the foundation of the world. Sholem observes that the place of honor in De Occulta Philosophia is accorded to practical Kabbalah and arithmology, for it is a rich source of information on the occult and Kabbalistic significance of numbers. At the same time, we should not neglect the importance of Kabbalah for Agrippa's notion of a sacralized magic. And one of the sources that Dr. Forshaw points out here is my old ASE friend Christopher Larrick's book by Brill Publication, The Language of Demons and Angel, Cornelius Agrippa's Occult Philosophy. Shout out to Christopher Larrick, Dr. Larrick. Miss you, dude. Page 149 to 159. If you have money for a $300 book, that is. <laughs> 4. A Kabbal chemical hybrid. Experimental fusions of Kabbalah and alchemy. During the course of the 16th century a pronounced trend emerged toward the permeation of Christian Kabbalah with alchemical symbolism. This convergence of alchemy and Kabbalah was perhaps to be expected as both arts were concerned with knowledge of creation. Both arts, too, advocated a secret transmission of knowledge from master to pupil, with initiations, ordinations, and revelations from God and his angels. To a certain extent, the Kabbalist's reduction of language to its elemental letters corresponded to the alchemist's reduction of matter to its primal state, the permutation of letters and words corresponding to the circulation and combination of elements and substances. This is an amazing point made by Dr. Forshaw here. And it echoes some of the application of Moshe Adel in looking at early forms of deconstructionism in, in Abraham Abulafia, in Adel's Absorbing Perfections, which is, I think, the best book ever written on Kabbalah. The first known combination of alchemy and Kabbalah can be found in the works of the Venetian priest Giovanni Agostino Panteo, Death, 1535. Who develops a hybrid Kabbalah of metals in two works, the Ars Transmutationis Metallica, Art of Metallic Transmutation, fifteen nineteen, and Vorcadumia contra Alchimium, Vorcadumia against Alchemy. Tough word. In the most Kabbalistic-sounding chapter of the Vorcadumia, concerned with the. Mixture at the roots of the unity of the 72 vorkadumic elements, Panteo numerically analyzes a small collection of words connected with alchemical substances. We learn that the mysterious substance, rizou, is called Thelima in Greek and in Hebrew, rekon, both terms appearing in Panteo's list of synonyms for gold. Both words translate literally as will. But the alchemico-Kabbalistic significance lies in the realization that the Hebrew rekon shares the same letters as Eretz, one of the Hebrew words for earth. In this opaque way, Panteo attempts a Kabbalistic elucidation of the secrets of the powers of alchemical substances and processes. He makes no direct reference to Jewish texts, but he does mention Pico and provides three magical alphabets derived from Hebrew, one of which... Is subsequently appears in Agrippa's De Occulta Philosophia. Another is the Enochian alphabet, well known to those familiar with John Dee's communication with spirits. The French Paracelsian David de Planus Campi, 1589 to CA 1644, identified Dee, the Elizabethan magus, as one most versed in chemical Kabbalah. This is doubtless because of the composite alchemical symbol. Mathematically, magically, kabbalistically, and anagogically, elucidated by D. in his *Monas Hieroglyphica, 1564. And Forshaw has an excellent essay on this, the early alchemical reception of John D.'s *Monas Hieroglyphica in Ambix, 2005. Dee is familiar with the kabbalistic exegetical techniques of the tziruf, or temura, of the Hebrews, and speaks of the kabbalistic expansion of the quaternary, thereby introducing a Reuchlinian reference to the Pythagorean Tetractus. It is evident, however, that he is less convinced of the importance of Hebrew than Pico or Reuchlin. D also shows a marked tendency to forge his own Kabbalah of Greek and Roman letters and geometrical, astrological, and alchemical symbols to discover the secrets of God and creation. Fun note, this is something that Amoyna and Mathers in Paris were trying to do, but I'm certain they were unfamiliar with these earlier writings and attempts. I might be wrong, but it's an interesting thing I'd like to ask Dr. Forshaw in the future next time we email. Despite being classed by Merrick Kossaban as a Kabbalistic man to his ears, Dee gives the distinct impression that he is not particularly interested in Kabbalistic textual interpretation. In the monas, he pointedly makes a distinction between a Kabbalah of the real and a Kabbalah of the word. The former, relating to the Book of Nature, the latter to the Book of Scripture. D turns from an exclusively literal Kabbalistic reading of printed books to one connected with natural magic and deciphering the hieroglyphs or signatures of the created world. You can see how, though D and many of these others practiced magic in a very pietistic Christian way often, um, and they may have had this fundamental supernatural belief in the meta-narrative and metaphysics of a Christian cosmogony is the basic principles of reality there is still as you can see this tendency for them to maybe look at nature as something as a even beyond it as a precategory to Christianity itself they could never really say or think this of course because that would be a heresy that could get them killed but there's this constant appeal to the book of nature and to this understanding that within natural folds and traces of reality there is a something beyond perhaps the interpretation of that reality so you can't see too much on this you can't go too deeply into it without really risking betraying what their views might have actually been but it is interesting to see this impetus to look beyond the interpretation of their Christian religion into what's actually going on in nature and this is where we see the real evidence of proto-science in alchemy and theology 5. The Sigillum Dei in Heinrich Kunrath's Christian Kabbalist Amphitheater So far, our story of Christian Kabbalah has primarily been one of Catholic exponents. However, it is a Lutheran acquaintance of D., the German theosopher and alchemist Heinrich Kunrath, 1560-1605, who appears to be the first person to publish a work explicitly describing itself as Christian Kabbalist. The Christian Kabbalist, Divinely Magical and Physico-Chemical Amphitheater of Eternal Wisdom, 1595 and 1609. Familiar with Agrippa's De Occulta Philosophia, it is likely that Kunrat deepened his knowledge of Christian Kabbalah through a compendium published while he was studying medicine in Basel. The Artis Cabalistica, Hawkes Recondite Theologia et Philosophia Scriptorum Thomas I, Volume I of the Kabbalistic Art, that is, of the writers of Recondite Theology and Philosophy, 1587, of Johannes Pistorius of Nida, fifteen forty six to sixteen oh eight. This collection has been called The Bible of Christian Kabbalah, containing as it does works by Pico, Reuchlin, Ricci, Arcangelo de Borganuovo, Leon ebrio, and a Latin translation of the Sefer Yetzirah. There's a great reference here to uh, Secret's Le Cabalistique Chrétien, page 280. Secret was the predecessor of Antoine Fevre, who now uh, in the Christian uh, Hermeticism and Esotericism Department at the Sorbonne in Paris, and one of the main sources of academic study of these mysteries. <laughs> Kunrat's knowledge of the Kabbalah most clearly reveals itself in the amphitheater's engraving of Christ, the Sigillum Dei, seal of God, or Sigillum Emet, seal of truth. As Raphael Pate remarks, one has the impression of seeing a complex Jewish emblem written in Hebrew, a central figure of Christ's cruciform, from which radiate eight concentric rings, five in Hebrew letters, forming a veritable brief anthology of important quotations, and names of Jewish religious significance. It includes the Ein Sof, ten Sephirot, ten names of God, and ten angelic orders. The twenty-two letters of the Hebrew alphabet and the Hebrew text of the Decalogue. The debt Kunrath owes to Reuchlin is nowhere more evident than at the heart of the engraving where five large tongues of flame appear, each bearing one letter of the wonder-working word yod He shin vav He. Yeshua. It appears that we are now quite far from Christian Kabbalah as primarily missionary activity aimed at converting Jews. No shit, eh? For Kunrath, Kabbalistic reception of divine revelation is to be used for the recognition of the divine Father and Son and the understanding of what he calls the three books of nature, man, and scripture, as represented in the best-known engraving from his amphitheater, the Oratory Laboratory. Kunrath's claims of being ineffably wrapped in God and inspired by Sophia Enthusiastica include a new dimension of personal revelation through dreams and angels to his Kabbalistic experience in the Oratory. In the Laboratory, one of the products of Kunrath's emphasis on the necessary conjunction of Kabbalah, magic, and alchemy is the Divine Philosopher's Stone with its physico-magical, hyper-physico-magical, theosophical, and Kabbalistic uses. Reference Dr. Forshaw's curious knowledge and the wonder-working wisdom, also Dan, Christian Kabbalah and the Renaissance, the Kabbalah of Johannes Reuchlin, on the opposition between Kabbalah and mysticism. Quote, the first emphasizes tradition and marginalizes individual experience, whereas the latter, includes the notion of an original discovery of a truth by an individual. Oh, this is such a good essay. 6. Zoharic and Lurianic Influences, Nor von Rosenroth's Kabbalah denudata. Interest in Kabbalah and alchemy reappears in the 17th century's most prominent anthology of Jewish and Christian Kabbalist texts. With the conviction that the Kabbalah was an original secret revelation that contained all the spiritual evolution of humanity from the creation of the world, and that the Jewish and Christian religions were identical from the point of view of their esoteric core, Christian Knorr von Rosenroth, 1631-1689, decided to publish a Latin translation of the most significant parts of the Zohar along with other Kabbalistic treatises and commentaries to assist the reader's understanding. This resulted in the publication in 1677 of the first volume of the Kabbalah Denudata, Seu Doctrina Hebraiorum Transcendentalis et Metaphysica atque Theologica, the Kabbalah Denudata, or the Transcendental, Metaphysical, and Theological Doctrine of the Hebrews, dedicated to the Hebrews, chemistry, and wisdom-loving reader. Whereas previously the most influential Hebrew sources had been the works of medieval authors such as Reconati, Gikatilla, and Abulafia, the Kabbalah Unveiled espouses the works of a new form of Kabbalah with a stress on redemption and the millennium, promoting what Sholem calls the true Theologia Mystica of Judaism. See Gershom Sholem's Major Trends in Jewish Mysticism, 1954. In keeping with the interests of earlier Christian Kabbalists such as Reuchlin and and Agrippa, this volume includes a key to the divine names of the Kabbalah and an edition of Gikatilla's Gates of Light. New, however, are the works of the Safed mystic Isaac Luria, 1534-1572, and other Lurianic Kabbalist works, including a detailed explanation of the Tree of Life and a summary of an unusual Jewish alchemical treatise, the Esh the Refiner's Fire, giving correspondences between the Sephirot, planets and metals, plus several speculative Kabbalistic works by the Cambridge Platonist Henry Moore, 1614-1687. A second volume of the Kabbalah unveiled, the Libra Sohar Restitutus, the Book of the Splendor Restored, 1684, emphasizes Knorr's missionary intent, beginning with the systematic resume of the Zohar's doctrines, to which is added a Christian interpretation. The same technique is used in another text, included in the volume, The Adumbratio Bratio Kabale Christiane, Ad Conversionum Judeorum, Outline of Christian Kabbalah for the Conversion of the Jews, a Dialogue Between a Kabbalist and a Christian Philosopher in which they explain their respective religious doctrines, showing the concordance between the two traditions. And uh, if you can taste a little proselytizing there, I think that's not quite out of accordance with uh, what might be going on for some people to some extent. But again, these are tricky nuances. Inspired by the Lurianic Kabbalah with its optimistic, vitalist philosophy of perfectionism and universal salvation, Rosenroth, And his collaborator in the publishing enterprise, Franz Mercurius von Helmont, 1614-1699, rejected many of the conventional Christian views of the Fall, Salvation, and the Trinity, as well as the particularly Protestant focus on divine justice, predestination, man's helplessness, and the concept of an eternal hell. They tended to minimize or allegorize Christ's role in the redemptive process, Preferring instead the Lurianic vision of a universe restored to its original perfection through human effort, and this is the sort of brings us to the Kabbalist version of karma, known as tikkun or tikkun olam, the putting back of the shattered vessels of the tree, and recreating the universe, redivinizing it from its brokenness, and the idea of human effort, of course, is it brings us directly to theurgy and practical magic in both the microcosmic and macrocosmic effort, as it is defined. This second volume also contains work that would be later of great interest to the occult societies such as the Golden Dawn. In particular, a section entitled Pneumatica Kabbalistica, introducing Kabbalistic ideas about spirits, angels, and demons, the soul, and various states of transformations included in the Kabbalistic theory of metempsychosis. Also included were Latin translations of Lurianic works, including chapters on angelology, demonology, and the magical creative power of language, describing how pious men can create angels and spirits through prayers. I'm going to read that again. Describing how pious people can create angels and spirits through prayers. Can create angels and spirits through prayers. This... Hmm. This is a uh, this, this was an idea. You see it all, a lot today. Uh yeah. <laughs> the Kabbalah denudata was superior to anything that had previously been published on the Kabbalah in a language other than Hebrew, providing a non Jewish readership with authentic texts that were to be the principal source for Western literature on Kabbalah until the end of the nineteenth century. seven. Christian Kabbalah on the Threshold of Modernity. Ettinger, and Molitor. Moving to the 18th century, the best-known representative of Christian Cabal is undoubtedly the Lutheran pastor Friedrich Christoph Ettinger, 1702 to 1782, who sought a philosophia sacra as a substitute for the systems of profane philosophy developed by thinkers such as Descartes and Hobbes. He found this in various guises, including the philosophy of Leibniz, the neoplatonically Kabbalistic works of Henry Moore, the writings of Paracelsus and other alchemists, the Theosophy of Jacob Burma, fifteen seventy five to sixteen twenty four, the works of the Swedish mystic Emmanuel Swedenberg sixteen eighty eight to seventeen seventy two, and in the Jewish Kabbalah. Ettinger was especially drawn to the Lurianic Kabbalah with the Etzheim Tree of Life of Luria's main disciple Hayyim Vital fifteen forty three to sixteen twenty. A major source for his Öffentliches Denkmal der Lehrtafel einer wählend württembergischen Prinzessin Antonia – Public Monument of the Didactic Painting of a Former Württemberg Princess Antonia, 1763. This was his description and analysis of an emblematic triptych commissioned for the Church of the Holy Trinity at Bad Teinach in the Black Forest by Princess Antonia of Württemberg, 1613 to 1613-1679 one of the daughters of the alchemist and occultist Frederick I, Duke of Württemberg. In his commentary on Princess Antonia's Lehrtafel, Oettinger sets forth a system of Christian Kabbalah based on his reading of the Zohar, containing separate chapters comparing the philosophies of Newton, Böhme, and Swedenborg with that of Kabbalah. For our final representative of Christian Kabbalah, we are back with a Catholic scholar in the figure of the German philosopher Franz Joseph Molitor. 1779 1860 like rosenroth and oettinger before him molitor collaborated with jewish scholars and developed his kabbalistic program over decades of research into primary jewish sources His four-volume Philosophie der Geschichte oder Über die Tradition, Philosophy of History or on Tradition, 1827-1853, was the 19th century's most erudite and profound consideration of the Kabbalah's significance for Christians, earning Sholem's praise as the crowning and final achievement of Christian Kabbalah. 8. Conclusion What has become clear is that Sholem's negative image of a Christian Kabbalah primarily engaged in evangelical activity against the Jews requires some modification. While it is justified on the surface by the overt declarations of Pico and Reuchlin, no doubt balancing on a knife's edge ever aware of the Inquisition, it misrepresents some of the Christian Kabbalists discussed here, who each had his own motives, ranging from novel biblical interpretation greater awareness of the prehistory of Christianity, church reform, and the revitalization of religion to insights into the theories of alchemy and the practices of magic. And a significant note here is to compare with Yvonne Petri, Gender, Kabbalah, and the Reformation, the mystical theology of Guillaume Postel from Leiden Brill 2004. Here Dan's more Irenic reading should be considered with the suggestion that even the early Christian Kabbalist works included a different, additional message, and irenic means opposite of polemic, so instead of a combative argument, it's a peaceful argument, that non-biblical Jewish sources also held great relevance for their Christian readers, not only as a way of strengthening and upholding their faith, but as a way of discovering a deeper, more profound understanding of the nature of their own religion. True, The aim of conversion often lurked in the background, but with it also the hope of reinvigorating the Christian religion, together with the possibility of personal transformation and spiritual transfiguration. There is surely some historical irony in the fact that it was the Christian Kabbalists who were the first to publish and promulgate Jewish esoteric material. With its implication of tolerance and even respect toward the tradition of another religion, their belief in the relevance of jewish kabbalah for its christian counterpart is quote very nearly unique in the history of the three scriptural religions and that quote is from dan the kabbalah of johannes reuchlin so this was one of my favorite essays to read uh last year um as i was always under the impression that that christian kabbalah really merged with the other esoteric traditions in the writings of pico i was of course aware and always a big fan of ramon Lull and his work in majorca and his especially his ideas that that people should learn different languages and we should learn the different languages of the areas it's almost a pre-rosicrucian uh, con- conception of how humans should behave in an enlightened society What's very significant about Dr. Forshaw's work here, and he's one of the greatest, in my opinion, scholars, focusing on some of the most interesting aspects of the tradition, is the variety in of reasons why different people approached the Jewish Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. And it's such a, a point that we can't overlook the fairness that sort of ironically came along and as a result of all of these academics and scholars and mystics and priests and bishops delving into the the prehistory of Christianity and the texts and the mysticisms of another religion and one that had been so often and to this day persecuted um, in so many ways. So there's really this humanitarianism going on as well as, of course, he mentions already plenty the idea of, of a desire to convert or prove that the essence of Christianity was always present in in, in in Judaism and and you see this this idea of course if these folks had had been more aware of I think of the Egyptian history as we are today they would have then even looked further back into the mythologies of Horus and Osiris and Isis and and then of course the Babylonian talmuds and the, those texts didn't exist either they weren't aware of the origins of a lot of their own biblical stories dating back to the Babylonian talmuds and other other ancient near eastern writings so again you have to remember with all of these early scholars in the renaissance and and the late middle ages they were operating on what the best knowledge was they had and um their strengths and weaknesses are therefore readily apparent, as I believe all of our strengths and weaknesses are readily apparent as we are conditioned by the time and place we're in and the access to knowledge that we have. It's something that should inspire us um, to do the best we can with the knowledge we have and not worry too much about exactly where we might be disproven by future generations. We're all going to be seen to be have major gaps in the, by the future Generations who look at our writings from a different hermeneutical vantage point. So, as these scholars are syncretizing Christianity with esoteric Judaism to reinvigorate. Christianity and Catholicism and it really here we see we see if you have not a wide view of the understanding of Christian history and theology and how magical or mystical or transformative it's often been you can really see that there is an act of life that has been suppressed in scholarship and in history that shows a lot of the spiritual and mystical practices that we equate now mostly with eastern religions vibrant and alive in the west throughout all of the last Two thousand years in in point of fact so um, from these Jewish mystical techniques were were integrated into Christianity in a way that we today only see often being represented in in Hinduism and yoga and buddhism and taoism a lot of those practices we think are unique to eastern faiths and spirituality but there's this wealth of christian western mystery interpretation that we just simply haven't studied for many many reasons but that's why it's great that dr peter j Forshaw and many others alison kuder and valder hanagraff and so many others are doing amazing work i'm gonna do an essay soon on uh, at Dr. Angela Voss's work in her department at University of Canterbury, has master's and PhDs in m- Myth, Cosmology, and the Sacred. Um, if you're looking to do a master's or a PhD, I recommend her program. And Forshaw, I believe, is at Amsterdam, currently now with Hanegraaff at the Hermetic Studies Department. And, of course, there is the Sorbonne and Antoine Fèvre, and from his predecessor, from, from proceeding from his predecessor, Secret. um... And then, of course, there's other programs as well out there, doctors like uh, Vers Lewis and, and all of them. There's many, many of these people, and uh, the academic study of esotericism is just a wonderful thing. And what I'm trying to do here, of course, is use some of these academic scholarship research pieces to inform those of us who uh, have a practical component to our spirituality, as well as just a scholarly one. So, enjoy. Oh, that's the cue.